0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew again, this time back to chapter 6. As you're turning there, let me just note as well something I probably should state periodically for those who may be uh, newer to the church or visiting inside the bulletins. There is a sheet um, for note-taking, if you'd like, for those of you who would follow better when you're taking notes There are fill-in spaces, if that helps you focus. Some people, it doesn't help you focus, don't do it. But if it does, sometimes it's for children can be helpful, it's there. So we just want to let you know that that is inside the bulletin uh, in case you ever would like to use that. Matthew chapter 6, we'll read verses 16 through 18. Beginning in verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Openly, let's pray. Father, we again give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for these important teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ in this sermon. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it, to properly apply it. We pray that you would direct our paths in our lives by your spirit, and that even now you would lay hold of our attention by your spirit so that we would hear from you and from your word. We pray that your grace and forgiveness would be upon us, Lord, so that we could receive benefit freely through Christ. So please hear our prayers, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We've been working through this section on the Sermon on the Mount where our Lord has been addressing the ungodly behaviors of the religious leaders, most particularly related to acts of worship. We've completed our consideration of charitable deeds first, And then we moved on to consider the topic of prayer, and this morning then we move on now to consider the matter of fasting. And again, as we've been seeing in the previous examples, our Lord will first address the ungodly self-serving actions of the religious leaders before describing the proper way in which His followers, those who are truly part of His kingdom, should fast. And all in all, we'll come to see here this morning as well, again, the general principle that our Lord is setting forth, which ought to govern all of our acts of worship and service to God. And so uh, we've talked about in the past, and I repeat again, that um, it's not that these are the only laws that Jesus gives us, or this is all He's concerned about, but He's giving us a few key examples, especially related to the misuse of the religious leaders, that ought to direct All of our worship and all of the ways in which we seek to serve and live our lives before God. Now, let's ask this question to start What is fasting? Let me explain what fasting is and how it is relevant to the Christian life. Sometimes it's easy to assume, and I know I've done this many times, it's to assume that we all understand these things and uh, and that could be a bad thing. And sometimes people don't really understand what, what these practices are or what certain doctrines are. And it's good to go back and just start from the beginning. Very simply then, fasting involves denying yourself food for any allotted period of time. To some extent, we can say that we all fast in the sense that, generally speaking, there's a certain point in the evening where we no longer eat any food for several hours. And so we fast through the entire night. And then in the morning, at some point, we break the fast when we eat, which is why we call that breakfast or breakfast. Some diets, in fact, some people in this church are on particular diets where they utilize weekly fasting periods, uh, certain days of the week, maybe one or two days in the week, or parts of days where people fast for various health purposes uh, or for cleansing out the body or rebooting the digestive system in some way, Uh, and so they might miss a day of meals or some uh, some degree of meals, Uh, and so there are health reasons why people may fast as well. From a spiritual standpoint, throughout history, the people of God would utilize periods of fasting as a means of seeking God in a very unique and fervent way. In a sense, the individual who is fasting for spiritual reasons is afflicting his or her body in this way by denying themselves food for a time uh, as a means of expressing a sense of fervency, And intensity in seeking the Lord. They're denying their bodies, setting aside the most basic of our natural desires as a means of expressing our dependence upon, our longing for, and our humiliation uh, before God. To this end, fasting is generally focused in nature, it's intentional, it's focused. On some particular matter of urgency, which the individual is seeking to set before God. You generally don't fast in times of refreshing or, or, or times where you're going through really good times and good spells on the Christian walk. It's generally not a time when people fast. Some important matter has arisen. Maybe there's a war that's going on uh, against enemies. Our country is in war with another country or something like that. In the case of Israel, when they were at war at times, they would be fast, especially when the enemy was more powerful from a natural standpoint. Or perhaps when dealing with some form of prolonged or painful affliction that somebody is going through, there might be people who fast and pray for that individual. Or they themselves may fast. It could be a spiritual a mental affliction or even a physical one uh, in general, some type of a health issue. Or maybe the individual has sinned in some very grievous way. I'm not talking just about the, the struggles each day w- that we, we got angry or the types of things we struggle with, with sins each day, but maybe there's some type of a grievous particular sin or even a besetting sin of some kind that somebody's really have a hard time wrestling with. And so they deprive themselves of food for a time with the intent of pursuing God with all sincerity and seriousness. It, it's not to, to merit anything from God by the fast, but it's just to set their mind to focus on pursuing God and they're not letting go in a sense of God until they find him to find an answer or help in some time of need. The Israelites would fast for various reasons, especially, as I said, when facing a much stronger enemy in battle or when bearing the weight and guilt of their sins against God. While we're not told directly, we can imagine that King Hezekiah, when the Syrians uh, had come in and they had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took them into captivity and then took over all of the the fortified cities of Judah, and basically just put their arms around the neck of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was on the verge of being taken. And Hezekiah knew, and the Israelites knew, as the the Rabshakeh was threatening them and mocking their God, they knew that they were in a position of desperation. And so Hezekiah puts on sackcloth and goes and seeks God. And the assumption there, although we're not told directly, is he probably didn't eat as well. When he was seeking God, usually the sackcloth comes with the the fasting and the mourning and the pursuing God for help and for grace. Some of you may recall when David, King David, had sinned with Bathsheba. And she was with child, and he had Uriah killed. And when David was confronted by the prophet Nathan, he was told that the child would die, and the child had an illness right after, soon after it was born. And and David had hoped he had gone and fasted and put on sackcloth and refused to eat, and he laid on the floor, and he had hoped that in some way, that as he appealed to God, that God might change his mind, as it were, and allow the child to live. And so he, he fasted, and he sought God with intensity. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, every year, the Jews would hold a solemn fast, and they were commanded to. This is one of the times, one of the rare times, they were actually commanded to fast. And they were to reflect upon and mourn their sins, as it were. And they were to ponder the special grace that God would grant them through that yearly sacrifice as they put into practice all that God had commanded for that event. It was to be a solemn time of fasting, a sense of grieving, and seeking God's grace and not taking Him for granted that He would forgive them for all of their sins for that year, especially the sins that were done in ignorance that they weren't even aware of that would be covered by that sacrifice. Now, how long should a fast be? Well, there really is no set amount of time which ought to be dedicated to a particular fast. A time of fasting can go anywhere from missing one meal to missing several meals to missing a few days of meals, to continuing until a particular event has transpired, which has compelled the fast. Maybe there's a a battle that's about to happen or take place, and people fast through it, or some kind of an event uh, in the church, or maybe some kind of surgery is taking place, or somebody is undergoing some type of treatment, and so they fast till the end of that treatment. So there are different ways where a time period generally uh, is allotted in some sense. Moses And the Lord Jesus Christ fasted for 40 days. Now that's not something I would generally recommend as they served a very unique purpose as mediators of their respective covenants. I don't know that that would be something that we should toy with. I don't think so uh, in our day and age. But even in that case, they fasted for 40 days. Finally, and obviously, because of the reality of denying one's natural hunger, which is involved in fasting, and that's not an easy thing to do. It can be a very difficult thing to do, to to miss even one or two meals. For me, my body's yelling at me, uh, even just for missing a few meals. Um, It's not naturally enjoyable to fast. It's not naturally desirable to fast, unless you are seeking the praises of men, which brings us to the main point of this text that we find in our Lord's sermon here for this morning. Uh, And so um, there's no great joy in fasting in that sense unless you see it as a means of impressing people by the fact that you're able to deny yourself some meals for a time. Let's look then at our text here and look at the issue of ungodly fasting now that we have an understanding of what fasting is. In verse 16, our Lord says, Moreover, when you fast... Do not be like the hypocrites. And again, we've seen this language with prayer and with charitable deeds. The same kind of language because he's bringing home a main principle here. Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And so what were the religious leaders doing concerning this matter, this religious practice of fasting? For one... They took a sacred act and they made it into a regular weekly practice which was completely uncalled for. There was no need to do that every week, two days a week. There was no calling for that in the life of the Jewish per individual or anyone for that matter. But even more so, even more so, they did it in such a way that they could show off how pious and self-righteous they were. They went out of their way to ensure that everyone knew that they were denying their own bodies as a means of showing their impeccable commitment to God. Look at me. Look at how holy and godly I am in the face of all these gluttons and prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners who could never touch this righteousness. They put on the sad and long face They intentionally disfigured and embellished their faces, perhaps with makeup of some kind, to to bring out the features of that fast to show that they they, they were lacking in their food intake so that they would look gaunt, they would look pale, they would look deprived. They exaggerated and used creative means of ensuring that everyone knew that they were fasting. And so once again, we see that their motives were self-serving, and they had no real concern for seeking God with any state of fervency or sincerity. They completely they made, misused the whole practice of what fasting was all about. It was all a sham show. And therefore, once again, our Lord states, as He stated in the two other texts that we've gone over with prayer and charitable deeds, they had their reward. Their desire for fasting was not to reach God, but rather to gain the praises and admiration of men, to impress the people, and therefore they could expect nothing from God in response to such a hypocritical act of worship. In contrast then to the hypocritical fasting of the scribes and Pharisees, our Lord then tells us about the godly way to fast when someone is going to fast, how they ought to do that. And he tells us that in verses 17 through 18. He says, But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And so the idea here put forth by our Lord is that fasting should be done in such a way that would not be evident to those who are around you. Rather than taking pains to bring out the fast, to show it off, you should take pains to hide the fast, to be discreet about it. Generally, fasting should be a personal matter between the individual and the Lord as the individual is pursuing God and His will in some significant and urgent way. Now, this is not to rule out corporate fasting. We do see in Scripture that there are times that the church fasts. There are times when the nation fasts. And so there is a place to call a corporate fast. At times, a church, and we've done this, may call a fast for some particular reason when we're seeking God's wisdom, when we're seeking His guidance and help concerning a serious matter. But even that should be done discreetly and not in a flashy manner as to how each individual is involved with that corporate fast. The idea of anointing the head and washing the face that he gives us here uh, is the idea to, to look lively in a sense, to not show uh, the sense of, of, of being in sorrow or, or like you're lacking food in some way. You don't want to show that off. It's meant to convey that conscious steps should be taken to even keep others from knowing that you're fasting rather than flaunting it as some means of declaring your piety. In this sense, the sincerity of the individual and his or her confidence in God is all the more validated because there's nothing to gain when no one else can visibly see that you're fasting, right? You have to have confidence and faith in God because nobody else can see it. And so the sincerity of it comes out most when we try to keep our fasting when we do that discreetly. To this end, let me just make a few more comments then about fasting before we bring this section on worship as a whole to a summary conclusion. First, there is a place. There is a place for mature believers. And when I say mature, I'm not I'm not speaking negatively of immature believers. I'm saying that the new believer I would not compel to fast. We read about the wineskins earlier. It could be too much to overwhelm people, especially as they're just coming into the faith to throw fasting in their lap as well. And the Lord was cautious of that with his disciples. For that matter as well. There is a place for mature believers to fast when there is a need to seek God concerning any number of urgent matters. From a private standpoint, this might involve personal struggles, this might involve personal suffering, this might involve serious family concerns, it might involve wrestling with some form of besetting sin, repentance over a particular grievous sin and any other personal matter that compels an individual to seek God with a unique sense of fervency and urgency. You're focused in seeking God, and you're removing everything else that would hinder your, your focus out of the way, and you're even depriving yourself of the natural desire for food. You're intent in seeking God urgently. From a corporate or a public standpoint, from the standpoint of the church, fast might include um, such things uh, as seeking God's concern, uh, God concerning the direction of the church or a particular ministry. Seeking wisdom. There, there, sometimes there are, there, there are gray areas and we're not sure what we should do here. How to handle this. And it's good to call a fast. Mourning over the moral, over the moral condition of our country. Seeking to appoint new elders and or deacons, we always should fast. We, we see that in scripture that they did that before we just put men into the office because we don 't always see things in leadership, even when we recommend people to you. We, we do our best to make good judgments if we 're going to recommend somebody for the diaconate or the elder or the eldership. it has to be a, a unanimous decision of both boards just to recommend them to you, and then you have to vote and we need seventy five percent of you, I believe, to get that person in the office. We take that serious, but we need to fast because. We we still don't trust even us. We know that we can fall short in, uh, in our observations and what we can see or not see about the individual's heart. When wrestling through church schisms and other significant matters in the church, when there are some significant things going on, maybe there's division in the church or something else that's important, we could call a fast in support of missions. Sometimes it's a good thing if, if there are missionaries that are out there and they're, uh, they're down and dirty and struggling and they're in the battle there in other countries uh, to fast and to seek God in prayer for them. And there may be a host of other reasons as well surrounding urgent circumstances. Secondly secondly and I'm addressing spiritual fasting here I'm not talking about dietary fasting as I said before that's a completely different thing but spiritual fasting should not be so regular that it loses its sacred value it should not become a habit i don't believe that it should be a regular thing or something that's habitual it shouldn't be normative but rather it should be for extraordinary and unique circumstances, especially involving matters of urgency. There's nothing inherently holy about fasting in and of itself. God is not impressed by the act simply because we do it. And we could fall into that category uh, when Paul addresses, I believe it's Timothy, or maybe in Thessalonians we went through this, and I'm forgetting now, about the idea of of bodily exercise and uh, profiting little. In other words, when you deny the body certain foods, or you deny the body your sexual desires in, in a married relationship, you're not impressing God by that. There's nothing holy about doing that. And fasting can become that if we're not careful. We need to ensure that there's a purpose for it that there's a sense of urgency, a real design to it, and it's not just a a regular habit for the sake of doing it, unless you're doing it for health issues. I'm talking about from a spiritual standpoint. Thirdly, and extremely important, fasting ought always to be accompanied by prayer. If you're going to fast and not pray, don't bother fasting. Or if you're going to just do one or the other, just pray and don't fast. I believe prayer is more important. The whole intention of fasting is to express a sense of urgency, humility, and dependence upon God. It is, in fact, an urgent seeking of God that's centered upon some matter of importance. And so if you fast without praying, you've pretty much defeated the whole purpose of fasting. Fasting in itself does nothing to move God in some way any more than heathens' repeated chants or cutting of themselves God. move God. And there are people who think that. There are people from a religious standpoint who think that just doing these periodic fasts is some kind of a penance or some means of attaining merit before God. And if you do that, you've just contradicted the gospel, right? So that's not the purpose of fasting. Fasting is a means of preparing our own hearts to seek to seek God with a sense of urgency, humility, and God-dependence. It's never a means of coercing God in some way. Well, if I just fast, maybe God will do this. No. He's not impressed, but he doesn't need us. Well, I just want to see people starve themselves. No, it's it's for our benefit to get us in the right mindset to say, look, we're putting everything out of the way, we're depending on God, we're humbling ourselves before God, and we're seeking God with a matter of urgency, even denying the most essential thing that we need of food for a time so that we can seek God with a sense of fervency. And so it's not to be something where we think we're moving God in some way because we're not eating. Fourthly, when fasting, and I think this is just a practical thing, and I want to say this just from a practical standpoint, one should ensure that he, she drinks sufficient water. Okay? Don't go into the, I'm not going to drink water fast. Okay? That, that's dangerous. Fasting should never include cutting off the water supply as well. That would be called fainting, or at the very least, it may be called suicide. Um, you need to drink water or fluids of some kind, Uh, when you fast. Furthermore, women who are pregnant or nursing young children or people that are taking various medications, people with various kinds of disabilities and those kinds of things should certainly exercise care when committing to any type of a fast for any period of time. Sometimes you may say, hey, I want to fast. And you're not thinking about the fact that you're on a medicine for whatever blood pressure or whatever it is. It could be a mental thing, a psychotropic drug. I don't know whatever it is, and you could actually do some harm to your body. And so we want to be careful. The Lord knows. He knows our hearts. He knows our desires. And it's okay not to fast when there's an obvious physical threat in view. And to, to, to take that threat and say, well, I'm going to have faith in God, I think, is to be presumptuous, and it's to tempt God in some way. So you don't want to do that. And if you've never fasted before, you might not want to start out with the 40-day fast. Uh, or even the seven-day fast, if you've never fasted before, because especially us in the American culture, we're used to having three meals a day, at least, Uh, and other things. In that culture, it was probably a little easier to fast in that time when they probably ate more, better proportion, whatever it was, and healthier food that wasn't what we have in McDonald's and all this stuff. Uh, We want to be careful, um, if it's your first time, to make sure that you don't overdo it. Even missing a meal or two, can help someone get a sense of how well your body is going to cooperate with you when you fast. You can always increase it at a later point in time if the occasion calls for it. I'm just saying all these last things uh, as a means of saying you use wisdom when you fast. There is a place for it, but be careful as well. Fasting does hold a place in the life of the Christian, and probably most of us could, use, uh, could do it a bit more. I can say for myself that I don't fast very often at all. Uh, and it's, it's something that could be a better practice. Again, not habitual, but something that there's a better place to have in the life of the Christian. Um, but we should do so discreetly. We should do so focused. We should do so with good reason. And we should do so with the right intentions and motives. Well, brethren... Let's bring this then all together based on what we've gone over in these three sections dealing with the aspect of worship because there is a general principle here that are given in these three examples. In our consideration then of the ungodly actions of the religious leaders seen first in these three areas of worship, charitable deeds in prayer and fasting, once again we come back to the general principle that our Lord is seeking to convey, which is rooted in the foundation of the Beatitudes that we went over at the beginning, and which is meant to cover all of our acts of service and worship before God. These are principles that go beyond fasting and charitable deeds and praying and have to do with our entire Christian life. And the general principle is this. Those who are truly in the kingdom of God will sincerely strive to live in such a way that would bring glory to God and not to themselves. That, that's the key, isn't it? What, what were the religious leaders about? Bringing glory to themselves. Getting the attention of the people to themselves. That is the very definition of hypocrisy. Using religion. Using uh, the, the, the worship of God as a means of bringing people to, to give you praise and to honor you. To this end, we ought to strive to serve in such a way that would draw people to God and not to ourselves. And brethren, while this principle may seem so obvious, if we're honest, we have a lot of fight in us that is constantly trying to draw attention to ourselves. That's, that's the battle for all of us. In some way, we can say that all of us have a John the Baptist mission in this one regard. Now, we're not John the Baptist, but there is something that we can borrow from John the Baptist, I think, all of us unanimously, is this. Our respective ministries and services should be ever governed by the desire to decrease while Christ increases. We don't ever want to put ourselves forth in any kind of a ministry where that if we were to die or we were to leave or fall away in some way, God forbid, it would ruin the entire ministry because it was built on us instead of Christ. We need to be those who decrease and are constantly pointing others. We need to be to to Christ, to be friends of the bridegroom. We were just at a wedding. Um, Matthias McMahon was just married, and it was a a nice event, very quick wedding as far as the ceremony goes. Um, But when we were at that wedding, one thing you thought about is the the bride and the bridegroom are, are the center of that event. And you can imagine if we're sitting in the pews over here and if I'm sitting back there and I kind of come out with a tuxedo on and I cut ahead of the, of the groom, and Matthias, I push him aside and I kind of just put my hands up and I get the attention toward me, how rude that would be, how wrong that would be. And Matthias would have a right to be angry with me. Or if the bride, somebody came in and had a beautiful dress that was full of lace and a big trail and jumped in front of her, you would say, what are you doing? That's insane. That's their wedding. It belongs to them. Well, brethren, we have to have that kind of a mindset for the groom the Lord Jesus Christ and His church, and especially that Christ would receive the honor. We are the friends of the groom uh, and not the groom. The religious leaders of our Lord's time, ironically, ironically, though seeming to be the most holy and religious people in the land, were really the most ungodly and wretched. Isn't that amazing? The irony of that, the paradox of that. The most religious were the most ungodly. At least the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners were not pretending to be religious. They weren't using the things of God as a means of glorifying themselves. They knew what they were. Now, I'm not advocating their sins, but I think it's worse to use God for the purpose of glorifying yourself than even to live as a prostitute. I think it's worse. To this end, then, brethren, we ought to be highly motivated out of love for Christ and out of distrust for our own natural fallen propensities, to consciously consider the motives that drive what we do when we seek to serve the Lord. None of us are perfect, and our motives are always tainted with some degree of imperfection. You're always going to see some degree of imperfection there. But there ought to be a real and sincere sense that we are doing all that we do because we want to see God glorified. Though our God is invisible and often untraceable to our physical senses. We truly know that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him in truth. And so we don't invest in the praises of men. We invest in the kingdom of God and His Christ, laboring to please and glorify God and not men. This is His story. This is His creation. This is His redemptive history that he has planned before time, before we were even an inkling of a thought, as it were, at least in this creation, from this creation standpoint, this is about God and his glory. We gladly exchange the present absorbing of the worship of men for the future declaration of God. Can you imagine hearing from God, well done thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of our Lord. What precious words It should be far more desirous to hear that than to hear the praises of everyone else in this world. And to this end, those around us ought not to feel distance from us as the average Jew would have felt around the Pharisees and scribes they would have felt so distant from them. We can't even touch them. They're way up there. Imagine. And you can see why when Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners and went around those who who had leprosy and things like that, you can see why people were amazed. Because the Pharisees and the religious leaders didn't do anything like that. They didn't go near the drunks and and the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. We don't present an alleged unreachable righteousness that we have which others cannot attain, which would drive them to hopelessness and despair. And brethren, sometimes we need to examine ourselves and ask ourselves as we're out there in the world and working and functioning and living amongst those who are unsaved, do we present ourselves in a way that would lead people to say, well, I'll never be able to get there. I'll never be able to get there. This person is beyond me. And I'm saying, do we intentionally do that? Now, people will will do that to some extent when they see us living a godly life. I'm not talking about that. But do we push that on people so that they feel that there's no hope for them? We ought to rather come alongside of sinners as fellow dependents upon the grace of Christ, pointing them to the same wonderful Savior who saves to the uttermost and who has condescended so low, so low to save us. We ought to show others and say, look, see that worm in the puddle over there? That's me. And the only reason I'm any different, or you see any difference in me, is because I am a product of God's grace. He has reached down into the pit and pulled me out. And I breathe the same air that you breathe. And I need the same God that you need. You need the same Christ that I need. All in all, one of the most egregious offenses of the religious leaders, one of the most egregious offenses of the religious leaders was that by their self-righteous, ungodly actions, they actually barred others from coming to experience the free grace of God. They presented a salvation that was based on their own merits, bound to their hundreds of outward cardboard traditional practices, which pushed everyone else out of the kingdom of God. There was no grace in their gospel. That's why our Lord stated, that which in many ways would sum up the main theme of this Sermon on the Mount. And also one of the main themes of the Gospel of Matthew for that matter. That's why our Lord said, I desire, go, go learn what this is to the religious leaders. He said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God has always been concerned about the heart. He doesn't desire robotic, ATM machine, plastic, heartless, rote worship. He's a personal God. And He is spirit. And those who worship him must do so in spirit. That is in sincerity. That is from the inside out and in truth in accordance with all that he has prescribed in his word. Well, let me leave you now with this closing exhortation to those of you who are outside of Christ. If you are not, if you are not a Christian here this morning, this entire truth, all that we've been going over, And this Sermon on the Mount concerning the heart is so relevant for you. From a negative standpoint, you must understand that if you die in your sins, you will remain forever condemned and you will bear the fierce wrath of God forever. And God is not interested in mere religiosity or outward works to try to merit His favor. God is interested in the heart. Unless your heart is changed And your sins are paid for. You cannot stand before the judgment seat of God and be declared righteous. The scriptures clearly teach that you need to be born again. But the good news is that everything God righteously requires of you, He has provided for in His Son, Jesus Christ. Everything that you need. All that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks about in this Sermon on the Mount can only exist in the hearts of those whom He has changed by His Spirit from the inside out. In a very real sense, you can say that this Sermon on the Mount, in essence, He would be saying those who are indwelt by my Spirit... Those who have truly embraced me by faith, he would say, and are indwelt by my spirit, will reflect that truth by living in these kinds of ways. That's what he's saying, isn't he? He's not saying, do this and get into the kingdom of God. He's saying, this is what my people will look like and how they will live because of the work that I will do in them through my spirit. And so you must abandon all of your confidence in yourself In your good works or in anyone or anything else, throw it all in the trash heap. And you must come to Jesus by faith, trusting in him alone to save you from your sins and to grant you the heart that you need. Jesus covers the whole package, the whole cost, or he covers nothing. You can't come to Jesus and say, well, you know what, can you just take care of this part of my life? Because the other part of your life that you think is good Is contaminated. It's fallen. You need the whole righteousness of God. That's why the scriptures talk about the idea of having an alien righteousness. That is a righteousness outside of us to cover us. We can't offer anything from our filthy, disgusting garments. They're contaminated from head to toe. We need to be smothered, enveloped, encased in the righteousness of Christ from head to toe. And he provides exactly that for those who come to him by faith. Everything you need, everything you need to be right with God and to gain eternal life and to experience the true peace of God in the present. Everything you need to be justified today in the presence of God, not later on, right now, to be declared righteous in God's sight. Everything can be found in Jesus Christ, but in Him alone. He Himself, the eternal Son of God, became a man so that He could merit and provide, for, provide us with all that we need to gain eternal salvation. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left an indelible crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. And so I would exhort you this morning, if you're outside of Christ, to repent, to acknowledge your sin, to confess it before God, and to seek Christ in truth, submitting yourself to His will and authority while you still have breath, for He is called Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks. (laughs) For your word, we thank you that we have such a faithful, glorious Savior who saves to the uttermost. What a glorious reality that is, Lord. And for the Christian in this room who knows you, for however many years they've known you, it could be for a hundred years or more, we can say, Lord, we can say to the fullest that we thank God that we bear Christ's righteousness today as much as we did when we were first saved. We need him. And, Lord, we pray that this would guide us in our actions, especially of worship, that we would worship from a pure heart, that even in fasting, should you call us to fast as individuals or as a church, that we would do it not to be seen by men, but that we would do it to seek you with fervency and with a sense of urgency, knowing that you hear us, not because we fast, but because we're in Christ. And, Father, we do pray that you would be pleased to answer the prayers uh, for, uh, for those in this room who do not know you. We pray, Lord, that you would lead them to that rock of the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can keep them from sinking in sand, who alone can keep them from sinking in the weight of their sins. We thank you that our Savior is so glorious, so full of grace, that his atonement was so effective that he is a far greater Savior than we are even sinners, and we are terrible sinners. Father, we ask that you'd hear our prayers and do the work that only you can do. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.